Amen. If you would now turn your attention to the Scriptures. If you're visiting, we have been in a series in the Gospel of John. We're nearing the end. Um, it's May all of a sudden, and things are. we're going to try to wrap this up before the summer. So we're really looking just at one verse in the Gospel of John, and I've included another Gospel text just to give it some context, but the, the, uh, those passages are in the order of worship, if you'd like to just follow, follow there. Uh, as, as I've gotten to know many of you, I know that some of you do not come from church backgrounds, and if you're visiting, you may, this may be the most churchiness you, you've ever been around. Uh, be merciful, by the way, if that's the case, be merciful. But uh, some, I know a lot of you, just the South, the Bible Belt, a lot of you do come from church backgrounds. And it's interesting, I think especially in the South, that if you come from a background like that, there are probably phrases that you have heard a good deal of your life that just, they just somehow got into the water supply of church lingo. Like, for instance, the phrase, every head bowed and every eye closed. If the first guy who said that had copyrighted that, he would be like a billionaire. Uh, every head bowed, every eye closed. Like, pastors don't even know they're saying it anymore. It just flows out that exact way. Here's another one. This, and this one is actually, be aware, this is very confusing to people who don't share that background. Accept Jesus into your heart. Uh, what are you talking about? And usually Christians have some idea what they mean by that. that. That phrase is actually not in the Bible. I know you think I just spoke heresy, but it's not. Not saying it's bad, but it's not. Uh, or accept Jesus as your blank, blank, and blank, personal Lord and Savior, kind of stock phrases. Uh, there are even, I would say, sort of stock applications. For example, I've heard this one a bunch. If God doesn't punish our nation... He's going to have to dig up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize to them. Pretty, you know, demonstrative application. I want you to think about this. I I have had a a number of people tell me that they heard this at some point, if they were churched growing up. It might have been from the pulpit. It might have been a Christian camp. It might have been a youth group leader. But it goes something like this. When we sin, you need to understand that that is just driving the nails deeper into Jesus' hands. Have you ever heard that? That when we sin, we are just driving the nails deeper into Jesus. And my hope is that after you hear this text, and we think about it together for a while, that you will realize that that is at best serious theological error. And it might actually be blasphemy. We're looking at one verse in John 19. It comes at the end of Jesus' crucifixion. Since we're just jumping into this, I want to read from the Gospel of Mark just to, just to hear some of what led up to these moments at the very end. So we'll begin in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And now in John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine... He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, when you know what goes on in our hearts and minds when we assemble together like this, and just as we've just talked about that not everyone here has a background with this. Not everyone has even heard any of these words before, but many have. And we are the very ones who can be the most jaded. And you know it. And we pray that we would not be proud. Father, we thank you that you are opposed to the proud. But you give grace to the humble. Would you enable us to humble ourselves before your word? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're basically looking at three words that come almost at the very end of Jesus' life as he's on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Now, there is so much we could talk about here, about what is the antecedent to it If it is finished, what do you mean by it? There's so much we could unpack. We could talk about, really, this is the end of the Old Testament era. It's recorded in the New Testament, but the the Old Testament dynamic ends here, and especially at the resurrection. It's the end of all the things that pointed ahead. And we talked about that last year, about the shadows that pointed to Christ, the, the, the priests and the sacrifices, the the furniture in the tabernacle in the temple. You know, that's finished. And after he said this, the, you know, the, the curtain in the temple was torn. But I, I want to I try to focus it this morning. I want to look at two things. When he says, it is finished, what is finished? Two things. Number one, our substitution and his humiliation. Our substitution and his humiliation. First off, 
our substitution. And I want to look at a couple of things about that, two points under that. The first is this, that Jesus is finished being the substitute for our sin, our punishment, the curse that we deserve. Now, we looked at this pretty intensely a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus saying, when He's right there, right on the, on the cusp of the crucifixion, He's praying to God, take this cup away from me. There's this cup. And even though He's been telling His disciples, yeah, I'm, I'm going to drink it. I'm going to go into this suffering. When it comes time to drink it, He prays not once, not twice, but three times, Lord, if there's any other way, Father, that we can do this, take it away. And there's no other way. And we talked about what is that cup, and it's an Old Testament metaphor. It's the cup, not of His blessing. That's the one you want. It's the cup of what sin deserves. It is a cup of God's justice on the things that we do. But we've got to, we've got to think about this again. You really cannot think about this enough. It says at the end of Deuteronomy... Do you know what the word Deuteronomy means? It basically means second law. And the book of Deuteronomy is, along with this history of God's people being brought up to the Jordan River, they're just about to cross over it into the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness and hundreds of years of slaves in Egypt. They're just about to go into their inheritance and there's sort of a giant review. Who is God? Who are you? What has He done on your behalf? What must you do and be when you go in there? And one of the things it says, almost at the end of Deuteronomy, this is in Deuteronomy 27, it says this, and if these words seem frightening, they should. If they don't sound frightening, we are jaded. We are on autopilot right now. It says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed. Now, understand what God just said. If you do not personally, perfectly, perpetually do everything in my law, a curse will fall on you. And if we are at all self-aware, I mean, just even like the things we talked about in our corporate confession of sin a few minutes ago, if we're at all self-aware, we should say, then we would all be cursed. Yes. And when an almighty God who is perfectly good and He's perfectly patient and He's generous and lavish, but who is perfectly, infinitely just, if He curses us, there is nothing we can do to undo it. Even if we could be perfect from this moment on, all the past offenses still bring the curse. And the Apostle Paul, thousands of years later, he thinks about that verse in Deuteronomy and he quotes it in one of his letters. This is in Galatians. He says, think about this, guys. He's writing to Christians. Cursed is everybody who does not abide by everything, every detail in the law to perform it. You're cursed. And then what does he say? That's in Galatians 3. And right after he quotes that, he quotes another Old Testament law, and it's this. 
He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and here's the quote, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And here's what that means. To some of you, this will sound like, I know that. But we cannot hear it enough. If you trust in Christ, the curse that we richly deserve, that God would be fair to deal out, fell on His Son on that cross. And that when He says, it's finished, there is no more cursing of God's people. The curse is negated past, present, and future. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, I got to um, take part in a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the biggest conference I've ever been to, 7,000 people. And, uh, and th- there was a section that was kind of assigned to me to s- where to sit. And one of the best things about this section was that I was kind of sitting on the right side of it. Here's the stage. Here's where I'm sitting. And just across the aisle was a section that had been reserved for deaf participants in this conference. And so during the talks at this conference, watching different members of that community sign to one another, what was being taught was, was just, you know, got in my crawl, you might say. But what really got me was the singing. Now, first off, to sing with 7,000 people, anything is just is moving. But there was this moment, and when I saw this, I thought, one of these days, I'm going to make a sermon illustration out of that if I have to wrench it into the sermon. But it fit perfectly, so I didn't even have to force it. Uh, we were singing a song that we love to sing in this church. We try not to oversing songs, but we do like to sing this one. It's called In Christ Alone. And there's a line in that song that says, it's talking about Jesus, and as He stands in victory, and here's the phrase, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. So we're singing, I'm just kind of immersed, 7,000 people singing, and I just happened to look over right when we got to that phrase. And there was this couple, and I found out later, husband and wife, he is deaf, she is not, but she signs with him and even signs for him during teaching. And I just happened to look over at her right when we got to that phrase. And when we sang, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, she did this. You do not have to know sign language to know what she meant. It, it, and I'm not trying to be corny, but it looked like evil came to her and she just waved it away. He finished the curse. And I'm telling you, we talk about that a lot. And we like could fill in a Bible test, probably, to get that right. But this week, all of us, I bet you at some point have thought, if I don't get serious about such and such area of my life, I just don't know what God is going to do to me. If I don't start praying more, 
if, if I don't control my temper, if I don't get a handle on my language, if I don't start cutting the checks that I need to cut, what is God going to do to me? Do you know what we are showing about ourselves at that moment? We are showing that the way that we act, the real theology, the way we think about Him is, I will do these things to appease Him and keep Him from hurting me. And that dynamic has nothing to do with love. I will control Him. No, we will not. If we are cursed and we remain cursed, nothing will stop it. But if we were cursed and it's finished, we cannot be cursed. We cannot be condemned. As a loving father, he might take us through some hard things. But is he doing that because he wants to smash us? Or because he loves us? He loves us. He ended the curse... But this other thing is this. He ended our shame. The shame is finished. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Everything is great. Everything is a paradise. Uh, Adam just gave, uh, God just gave Eve to Adam. Uh, creational bliss. Garden bliss. Marital bliss. Bliss with God. Bliss with each other. Everything is right. And how does Genesis 2 end? Right before the wheels come off. What's the last thing that said? And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. And what happens immediately on the hills of them disobeying God? They cover themselves, they know they're naked, and they hide. Why? Because shame just arrived. And all of us are born with that. But what Christ did is not only to take the curse, not only to take the punishment that we deserve, but think about this. In their shame, God sends, banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. He does clothe them, but He sends them away out of the holy place. That afternoon, when Jesus was crucified, understand, He was not crucified in the city. With all due respect to Charleston, The holy city is Jerusalem. The holy city is Jerusalem. So holy, you don't do crucifixions in the city because they are so shameful. You take them outside the city. He is taken outside the city. Jerusalem means city of peace. City of the king. He is the king. He is the prince of peace. It was supposed to be his city. He's taken outside of it. And he is made unclothed. They're, dev- they're gambling for his clothes. His clothes are taken off, so there he is exposed to the world. People are walking by. It says they're wagging their heads saying, uh, he was going to save Israel, but he can't save himself. And we may be thinking, yeah, but you know what? He is so loving and righteous that he was glad to do that. Do you know what it says in Hebrews chapter 12? It says that when he was on the cross... He endured it. But it says, and this is a quote, that he was despising the shame. Because it was awful. He despised it. But he finished it. And in another place in Hebrews, it says this. This is unbelievable. 
It would be great enough if it said, Jesus calls us brothers. Wouldn't that be awesome if it just said, man, He's not just King and Savior. He calls me His brother. But it says something even better. In Hebrews it says, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And boy, I can't speak for you, but I have given Him ample reason to be ashamed. And He is, if I may be personal, He is not ashamed to say, I love Brian. He is my brother. And if you knew the last 24 hours inside of me and outside of me, How, what might that... It, well, that should change everything. Here's one thing. Um, do you know that feeling when you have seen somebody, maybe here at Downtown Prez, and you met them three months ago, and you keep seeing them, and in the three-month period you have not renewed your knowledge of their name, and now you're... What do you do? It's this really great strategy. We avoid them. <laughs> avoid them, because I might be, you know, forced into shameful embarrassment. And so now the shame is controlling me. Or, you know, like the new neighbors moved in two years ago. We never met them. We never said anything to them. We never took them anything. We sure didn't have them over. And so basically, we are never going to have them over. Ever. Shame. There are things that we know that we need to pray about. And we won't. And usually it's because I have told him 392 times that I would never do that again. And I did. And I'm just ashamed to say it for the 393rd time. What you're saying is, there's some shame that's not done yet. And that defines our relationship. The shame is finished. The shame is finished. I can't start praying more for people in my life or for my church because I should have been praying that much all along and I'm ashamed of myself that I haven't been praying the way I should all along, so I'm just not going to pray because I'm overwhelmed. That's a great idea if you're ashamed. Shame is finished. Finished. Now, that's our substitution, but th there's another thing. And we tend to run everything through the grid of what this mean about me. But let's stop and say, when he says it's finished, what did it mean for him? His humiliation was finished. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God, equal in power and glory to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And on that cross, He is a beaten, bruised, bleeding, weary, poor, crucified peasant man. What was being finished? Think about the 30, we don't know exactly, 30-something years that he had to be sad. It says in Ecclesiastes, and you need to know this, because we tend to think the more you're growing as a Christian, the happier you are all the time. It says in Ecclesiastes 1, 18, that if you grow in wisdom, your vexation will grow. If you grow in knowledge, so will your sorrow because you'll look around and you really understand the way things ought to be and the way the things actually are. And you know who was, had the most knowledge? The most sorrow? Who saw everything with crystal clarity? Jesus. And that's why 800 years before He was born, it said in Isaiah, 
that he's a man of sorrows. He is well acquainted with grief. He had bliss forever. That was finished. Jesus is not sad anymore because he's victorious. And he's fully aware of everything about our fallen world. He knows it more perfectly than we ever will. But he is not sad anymore. But it's an end of the suffering, that acute suffering. It's the end of the physical suffering. And that, of course, that's all more terrible and horrible than we even want to think about. I was mentioning this in the women's Bible study this week. <clears throat> when I was little... I think about five, one time I wandered off from our house and I went several houses down the street, but my parents couldn't find me. And so finally they found me and they picked me up and they put me in the back seat. I don't know where my brother was, but I was alone in the back seat. And they're driving me back and I could just tell I was about to just get in major trouble. And I said, I'm scared. And my dad turned around and said, you should be. <laughs> Which just ran everything through an amplifier. And so we got home, and I threw up. <laughs> just, I, just the impending doom made me physically sick. Now, you know, and that, uh, you know, funny incident. But uh, you've had moments like that. You got terrible news. Um, you were betrayed. Someone's dying. You might have actually become physically ill. I've never met or talked to anyone who ever experienced. I think it's called hematidrosis. It's to be under such duress that the capillaries in your sweat glands burst and you sweat blood. And we tend to think that's because of that Roman flogging and the beatings. And he just knows that's coming. And certainly that didn't make him any happier. But I don't think that's the main thing. The main thing is he knows that something's about to be fulfilled. It's another prophecy in Isaiah and it's where it says in Isaiah 53, one of the clearest prophecies of these events, that the Lord was pleased to crush him. That a dynamic of perfect love, perfect unity, perfect enjoyment, a bliss that we can't understand yet, had existed forever, and he even had it in his humanity from earth with the Father in heaven. It wasn't broken then, but it was broken on the cross, and that's when he screams, My God, he doesn't call him Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the weirdest moment in history, and it's finished. And here's the thing, if He's up there for us, and if there was a break with the Father, because He's becoming what we deserve, and then the break with the Father is ended, the breach is over, and the love and the unity and the acceptance and the enjoyment is restored, guess what that means? We'll never lose it. We'll never lose it. Because it's finished. But let, me, let me finish by saying this. Uh, what are we to do with all this? I, I was talking to my wife, Dana, about this just last night. It just sometimes overwhelms me that the ethos 
of our lives. And I think this is all over the world, but it's especially in the West. The ethos of our life is, it's not done. It's not done, it's not done, it's not done. And all the cool commercials about all the cool technology, and it is cool, it is cool. But all the cool commercials and all the promises about how this is going to streamline everything, we, we will not learn that it does not really streamline. It sort of ups the ante. If you can do more with it, then you ought to do more with it. And if you ought to do more with it, the pressure cooker has been turned up. And that is part of a fallen world, friends. But I want you to think about this. When Christians, a long time ago, boiled down historic Christian claims to small creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both of those creeds say something that we don't talk about a lot. You know what they both said? I mean, they distill it down lean and mean. Something that appears in both those creeds is that after Jesus ascended into heaven, He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. Why does He sit at the right hand of God the Father? Because there will never be division. There will never be separation. But He sat down because He's done. And right now, and this may sound like science fiction, guess what? The gospel is supernatural. It is otherworldly. So I want to say this to you. Right now in heaven, what people are singing about and living out of is not what has to be done. What people are, angels and souls are singing about is, He did it. Look at the songs in Revelation. What are the songs about? He did it. And they can't get over it. And they live perfectly out of that. A day will come in the new earth where the ethos that will reign on earth will not be, what must I do? Not even what must I do for Him. The ethos that will reign on earth is, it's finished. Forever. Amen. Let's pray.